Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Richard Atwood. I'm from Wolverhampton. I've lived there all my life. Um, maybe I should have, uh, being a motorsport freak, maybe I should have moved to London, which is much more central for all the, uh, well, parties that go on apart from anything else. Um, but uh, we had a family business there, and that's uh, I grew up with cars, so it basically started from there, and my career started through my father, who is my sponsor, and he'd done a little bit of Brooklands before the war in the mid-30s, um, but he had to really um, generate a business for himself. So he didn't spend as long there as he wanted to, I think. And he did more motor racing through me, which I wasn't aware of, certainly for the first year or so. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Well, hello. Welcome. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. As you might have seen from this week's title, this week, Miles and I are joined by somebody very, very special. Miles, I will let you talk up our guest today. Well, he needs a lot of talking up because this guy is very, very, um, what should we say, understated in his own way. Mm. Um, celebrated as one of the most successful Porsche Works drivers ever. Pretty good, that. Isn't yeah, it? he goes quite well. Yeah. And as you have quite rightly pointed out, I should say, dear listener, as you are, many of you will now understand how the pattern of how this works, uh, we have conducted this interview already. This is Miles and I doing our little intro, our pre-ramble amble before we go into the conversation. Uh, but you're exactly right in your observation of humble man, because um, I think most people wouldn't assume that Richard is anything more than a guy that maybe once had an involvement in motorsport, and that's about it. 
Uh, but uh, as it turns out, he is a extremely successful racing driver. He's driven a collection of cars, all of which I will list through in our conversation, uh, but is perhaps most notably known for taking the victory at the 1970 Le Mans 24-hour race, driving uh, none other than the Porsche 917 or 917, depending on what part of the world you're from. Exactly that, yeah. Um, there's a fantastic story that leads up to that, mm. um, and it and it spans over 10 or 15 years. That's the headline, of course, uh, which everybody <laughs> talks about, but he has a fantastic span of incredible races and race cars, as John referred to, that he's driven over many, many years, largely during the 60s period, which, as we all know... Well, that was a lovely safe period of racing, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Nothing ever went wrong, which is just great. Yeah, cars were safe. Everything was predictable. No, hang on a cars minute. Ah, oh, hang on. No, oh. no, it was the exact opposite ah, of that. It was. It was. Yes. Um, so we're very lucky to speak to him still. Um, he regales many, many a fantastic story uh, that we drag out of him because, um, you know, he just sits there very humbly with his cup of tea, doesn't he? He does indeed. He does indeed. So we'll let you enjoy that. Stick around right to the end, though, if you will, because we have some parish notes that I occasionally like to add on to the end of an episode. So uh, enjoy. This is 1970 Le Mans winner Richard Atwood on the Driven Jack podcast. Speak to you in a bit. I am very happy that we are joined this week. Miles and I are joined by a fellow racing driver. And um, I, I'm always cautious about using the word legend because I know that some people, some people are offended by it, and some people really love it. So I, I should have checked before we recorded, Richard. But I'm going to say motorsport legend, Richard Atwood. Richard, if welcome. That, if that's your opinion, that's fine by me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> love that kind of answer. I think anyone that has Le Mans winner in their in their little list of uh, accolades is they definitely get legendary status. Or we could say hero, which, whichever you prefer. We can well, we can title accordingly. I, I, I get quite bashful about that, so you can say what you like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Richard, thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, we are no stranger to having conversations with amazing people from the automotive world. As we said before we started our recording today, we've spoken to all sorts of different people now in the 150-plus episodes that we've recorded, from car designers through to motoring journalists through to television presenters uh, to producers to scriptwriters, uh, and, of course, to racing drivers, and that's... Everybody from modern day F1 drivers through to drivers of hugely successful drivers like yourself from the Le Mans series. Um, where do you pitch yourself? This is always a question I enjoy asking people. If somebody, if you meet somebody in the pub, for example, and they say, so, so what have you done with your life? What's your quick and easy answer, if there is one? Well, I usually, I, I have to try and uh, find out how, uh, why that question came about, if you like. Mm -hmm. And if they're really enthusiastic um, for instance, when I've worked at Porsche, um, I'm an instructor at Porsche. Yes. They don't pay me as Richard Atwood something extra above a normal instructor. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that 85% of the people I've been with uh, at the driving centre at Silverstone have no idea who I am. I'm just a, a Richard the instructor. Mm. And, and I'm, I'm a little bit like that, reserved. Um Sometimes you're talking to someone and they really don't have a lot of, they don't have a hand on motorsport really. So, uh, but someone who wants to really know uh, a lot, I eventually will go around the surface of what I did. And then if they ask further, then they obviously want to know more. 
and eventually they might find out that I actually won them all. But uh, <laughs> in in general, they don't. But a, a lot of uh, customers who I've been with Porsche a long, long time, and uh, they know who I am anyway, so I can't <laughs> pull the wool over their eyes. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm a backward sort of guy rather than coming forward. And just for the benefit of the audience there, uh, Le Mans is a, this little race that <laughs> nobody really knows about. This kind of... Um, Small part of France, you know, it's not very not very well celebrated. <laughs> it's actually one of the biggest motorsport events in the world, if not the biggest. So um, to drop that in there, Richard, is very humble of you. It is. And it, uh, what I find interesting as well is uh, having done yeah, a little bit of reading beforehand, that race that you, that was fairly early in your career in the grand scheme of things, wasn't it? That race, 1970, when you were driving uh, with Hans Hermann mm. and I, I read in a, an interview previous interview that you'd given that you were actually you were quite humble with the win you were quite happy to pass it on to Hans who'd been racing for a lot longer at that time mm. and for him it clearly meant a lot which of course it would mean a lot to any driver um, but am I right in saying that you were kind of quite happy to let Hans get the the glory for it even though you were well, by far the you know not, a, a, a crucial really. part I mean I think everybody in the game knows that you know at those times at those times we had two drivers. So, yes. um, I mean, you know, you can't have one who's not more or less at the same similar level, if you like, for sure. that sort of race. And um, we had great respect for each other. And um, actually, I chose to drive with Hans that year. Um, from the factory had a, a, a list of at least ten drivers, and I chose to drive with him because he's the steadiest guy. Um, and I had lost, uh, I'd had a lot of, uh, the, the, the race I did before that particular race in 1970 was, uh, I had quite a few retirements mm. and I uh, just wanted to make sure we finished and had a, some sort of result. <laughs> but, uh, but after qualifying, I realised that we were, um, we were so far back because the specification of the car I'd chosen mm. was actually quite slow. Um, uh, but the, but the race came to us. We didn't do anything heroic, but um, it, it was quite a difficult race because it rained a hell of a lot, and the number of finishes in that race were fewer than way fewer than normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out as well. The car that you were driving is nowadays a car that is looked back on and celebrated so fondly. The nine one seven Porsche. But at the time, it was still in its. It was kind of in that early stage of its career, wasn't it? As a car, it was still undergoing development, even on the circuit. You know, whilst competing. Yeah, <clears throat> the first year was um, um, the car hadn't been developed properly enough, mm. um, and I found out years later that they'd been doing a lot of their running on an airfield <clears throat> down a straight getting up to high speeds, but they weren't getting to the ultimate speeds we reached at, on the Molson Strait, which is three and a half miles long. Um, so I, I guess that they were, you know, maybe it's two and a half miles long, uh, a, a runway. Mm. And by the time you've got up to speed and then you got going and then you've got a break before you <laughs> break the sound barrier yeah, yeah. at <laughs> the other end of the, the airfield. You've got to stop, turn around, and come back. Mm-hmm. And I think they were they weren't they were getting up maybe to two hundred, around two hundred, but we were actually doing quite a lot more than that. Two thirty five the car was able to do in nineteen sixty nine, wow. which was a long tail, very sleek and wind cheating car with minimal uh, wing elements on it, just fins really. So it was extremely fast, but it was really not stable enough. 
Mm. And uh, it was um, a bit of a nightmare to drive, to be perfectly honest. Um, I didn't volunteer to drive it myself, <clears throat> but I, I drove with Vic Elford, and um, we were um, we got three hours to go. We were five or six laps in the lead, and uh, the gearbox broke. And I was I, I, the, to describe um, how how stressful it was to drive, if you like, or uh, you could put it how you like, but it was unbelievably difficult. Um, there's there's a kink down the Molson Strait, and any car I've driven before or after has been easily flat. It's not a, a hero thing. It's it's quite comfortably flat in a car that's sorted. This car was not sorted, and you had to... Had to had to slow the car down mm. for that to go around it. That, was that, that just a lift or was that a... Oh, it was quite a, quite a break yeah, because wow. the, the car just didn't want to know about cornering at high speed because it was nearly off the ground. Wow. And uh, <laughs> it, well, it's absolutely true. And um, so when the car failed, I was actually uh, far more relieved than the fact that I was three hours away from winning Le Mans. Oh, wow. and, and that is an absolute fact. And I think Porsche saw the disappointment in my expression, if you like. Mm. But I was I was absolutely drained. Mm. I'd had enough. I didn't really want to be in that car anymore. And I, you know, it lasted all that long. You know, twenty one hours of, of really unbelievably uncomfortable driving. The the the, the worst time I've ever had, ever had in a race car because it wasn't sorted. And um, that's why um, in the February the following year, 1970, uh, Porsche actually had the, um, well, courtesy, I suppose, if you like, to ask what configuration of a car, because there were short tails by then mm. and long tails, and uh, I, I didn't want a long tail car anymore because of my experiences. I said, I want a short tail. I want the smaller engine, which was four and a half litre, not five um, and I, I, I said three things actually, and I, I wanted to drive with Hans Hermann because he was ten years older than me, and I didn't know this at the time, but um, he vowed to his wife because he actually finished second the year before uh-huh. in a 908 Porsche Longtail, which wasn't the same drama that was with the 917, and uh, Jackie X won it in the Ford GT40, and uh, but I, I, I didn't choose him because of that. I chose him because of his longevity in the game. But he promised his wife that he would retire if he won Le Mans. Uh, and, I mean, the chances yeah. of it happening were extremely remote. And he said he would. And I don't think he ever regretted that anyway. Mm. But I didn't know that, fortunately, because otherwise I'd have put so much more so much more on my shoulders to actually try and help him achieve something that you know which he'd been driving for a long time he went to Le Mans many more times than me um so uh, fortunately I didn't know that and when we when we won he um he actually he rides straight away absolutely and he was 40 by then Wow. Which is probably a good time to do it. That's fascinating. Do you think he? Do you think he was expecting to win? You mentioned there that no. perhaps. Oh no! So I wonder no, no. if it was almost a, a, an empty Absolutely. threat to his or an empty offer to his wife. I promise, if I win, I'll stop racing. <laughs> but yes, uh, it, it could be. But I don't oh. think he thought like that. No. I mean, I, and 
And really, he probably thought that before we actually got there, you sure. know, because yeah. Rin and I was so we got a good chance to do well. Yeah. <clears throat> but our car was so slow by comparison to most of the car, well, all the cars in front of us yeah. uh, were much faster than we were. And um, in, in we finished 15th, uh, we ended up 15th on the grid, so 14 other cars in front of us. And I said to my wife, and it's absolute fact, I said, we have no chance in this race because wow. we just, we can't possibly stay with the leaders, which we couldn't do. And um, there are many reasons for that. It was a short tail, so you're throwing away at least 25 miles an hour down all the straights. Um, you've got a smaller engine, so you haven't got the torque of the big five-litre, and that counted very much at uh, the Molzahn and Arnash corners, which are basically 25-mile-an-hour hairpin bends. So you had to go right down to the lowest gear you could use. And in 1969, the year of the, the horror car, we had a five-speed box, but this, in 70, we only had a four-speed box. Wow. But we... We were not allowed to use first gear ah. because of the um, they didn't want to stress the car any more than necessary, so yeah. we had to use second. Huh. Now, using second at 25 miles an hour is it's not going to pick up very well, right. and that we were losing a lot of torque from we would have needed from the five liter. We didn't have that, mm. so we're probably losing two or three seconds on each of those corners. I'm only guessing now because I don't actually know what the lap tires were. And then we're losing all the way down the straight. So that's why we're so far on the grid, down on the grid. And I did say to my wife that we have no chance because we're never going to get anywhere near. And um, I, I, Hans started the race, but I watched the start. And the start was, like, I mean, it was a big glamour event and everybody else. And so many drivers wanted to lead the race or be, you know, at the front. It was like a Grand Prix. <laughs> and it, it was just ridiculous. I thought, Flat this out, is absolutely out. crazy. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, this this could be all right. could do us a favour, you know, if they're all, you know, battling away at, <laughs> with each other and knocking themselves about. <laughs> um, but, <clears throat> but I still, I mean, to, to expect 14 cars to have trouble or, uh, you know, it's just ridiculous. But after only 10 hours, when I came in after 10 hours, they told me I was in the lead. Wow. We're in the lead. I mean, and it was a, a crazy race mm. uh, that any of those cars in front of us could have just backed off a little bit. It's a 24-hour race. The cars were not uh, bulletproof like they are today. Mm. <laughs> And they did break, and uh, you know it's it's it's. I regard it as a not a regular regularity thing, but more of a, um, a medium pace race. Really, you know, if you if you drove hard the whole way through, it's almost certainly the car would not last sure. on that time. They were the gearbox or the engine or something would would break. Um, so to go as they were doing at the front. I mean, it's like they didn't want to finish a race. This is the thing. This is the, what I find fascinating about, like you say, your approach versus the other drivers of that period as well. You know, um, I don't know, famously or infamously, Porsche would only design the cars to do the race, if, as I understand it. You know, they would 
Is that I right? Think, I think any car at that time, uh, the engineering, I mean, everybody wants to make the fastest car. Yeah. So you're putting things on the edge anyway. And if you're, it's just not like today's where you have exotic more materials and things that are much more durable and all that sort of thing. You know, they were the early days of high speeds and the, the 917 was probably, I mean, whether the 7-litre Mark II GT40s would do 200, they, they possibly might have because I have a 7-litre engine there. Um but really, we were consistently over 200 miles an hour, which really hadn't happened before. Wow. So and, you're, and, and, you know, 200 miles an hour is still, 200 miles an hour then is still 200 miles an hour now. You know, it's a yeah. big speed. Absolutely. It's a big speed. And even in a modern car, even in a modern race car, it still feels fast. Yes. So I cannot for imagine to think yeah. what it must be like in a rattly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, but you see, today, the um, I mean, in racing today, it, a lot of the aero is used to keep the car on the ground. And this this obviously detracts from the top speed. Yes. And the, the top speeds at Le Mans have never really gone above 250 miles an hour mm. um, because they would, in my day, they would be quite difficult to hang on to yes. uh, yeah. because you haven't got the road holding that you had have today. Mm. And there were, we did have uh, tyre issues where they were chunking in 1969. So we had to slow that car down a little bit, which helped. A little bit, but but not nowhere near enough. It's Only amazing. about ten miles an hour. I find the um, I feel like guesswork is a perhaps a not a fair word to use, but there was a certain element of guesswork in a lot of what was happening in the world of motorsport back in that era, wasn't there? We don't, as you say, the things like the aero development. There wasn't really much in the way of beyond sending a car down a runway to see how it handled at a, over certain speeds, and driver would come back and say, "Right, mm. at this speed it was good." Then it got a bit scary. Then it seemed to come back, and then it was scary again. I used to have uh, wonderful conversations with an old work colleague of mine. who was a gentleman who you may have crossed paths with, Maitland Cook, who used oh, to yeah. work for John Wire. Yes, very and he well. used to regale yeah. these wonderful stories about sending test drivers. In fact, he was very heavily involved in the GT40 project, where, of course, the cars famously were made in Slough mm. in uh, West London rather than the US, yeah. as many of the Americans would like us to believe. And a lot of the development on those cars for the Le Mans race was done on the... Uh, the motorways on the way over yeah. to the race itself, and you think yeah. just incredible to think that that was the the fine tuning on the M4. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah, which is right, much <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you <laughs> think handy. you know you can imagine them crossing the uh, crossing the channel and doing one last dial in, yeah, flying down to Le Mans and getting to the circuit. Go, okay, a bit loose on the front, but things like again the tire technology. You know, nowadays we think of the most powerful production car that you can buy, which is a uh, undoubtedly a Bugatti project a product of some sort, the Chiron or whatever the super fast version of that is. But they say, don't they, the Bugatti engineers, even to this day, say this car could probably do 300 miles an hour. However, mm. we can't legitimise that. We can't warranty that because tyres aren't capable. We still haven't developed a tyre that we fully trust will do those sort of speeds. Mm. So then when you dial back the clock and think to 1969, 1970, 1971, cars are doing those speeds then without... There is no data analyst looking at a computer screen, working through engineering you know, grounds of safety, going, right, this is going to be good, this is going to be safe, this is going to be danger zone. For, then it really was a lot of just, let's hope so that safe. this works. I think I think really tyre technology was, uh, I mean, actually um, from sort of 1966 onwards, there was huge tyre development uh, during that period of 
four or five years mm. to the to, to 1970. And um, in in 1969, for instance, the 917 we had there with the aerodynamic problem car, um, we had the standard Dunlop uh, treaded um, race tyre treads they used mm. in most of the formers right up until that time. And in fact, the um, the rear rim widths on the wheels of the 917, the first year was um, 12 and a half inches, I think, maybe 12 inches wow. wide. Yeah. And eventually, the, within a year or 18 months for sure, they went from that to 18 inch wide. Gosh, that's enormous. <laughs> so, I mean, that just shows you how much development was. It was really well. And, 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 and the tyre people couldn't tell you what the top series were. There was no measurement no. Uh, available or test rig that that probably went up to those speeds. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, many drivers have died uh, down the Mozart Strait before it was had lined with barriers. And if they went off, they went into something solid. And that's really, that was the end of them, really. But through tyre uh, failure and uh, overheating and come off the rims or whatever and the driver has no chance no just um, this is a this is something that i think you know versus if let's look at Le Mans uh, in the 70s or you know late 60s versus now you know the risk shall we say to the driver where well, they can jump in the car with a great degree of confidence knowing that things are going to generally work if they have an incident they're probably going to be okay to an extent you know they'll at least survive um just talk us through the emotion of, you know, as you said, you to be in that car and actually not be particularly happy that you're driving it in the first place. Just talk us through the emotion about actually strapping yourself in and thinking, hmm. Mm. Well, uh, I mean, that has been asked before. And, um, you know, you're a professional racing driver um, and you can't not do the job. Because um, that's what you're paid to do, yes. and you've got a contract. But you could rip the contract up and walk away from it. Um, but so many other people who are properly less, I dare I say, responsible or even thoughtful enough to work it all out, um, probably would, would have dived straight into the car and, and you know done whatever they could and get to hell with it. But we we knew what we were up against. I mean. The safety of the cars, the, the drivers were not protected really in any special way because they were designed to be as light as possible. Yes. And with the 917, your feet uh, were beyond the front axle line. And I always said if I was going to have a wallop in a 917, I'd have to go in backwards yes. uh, <laughs> to try and absorb some of the, yeah. uh, wow. <laughs> the mass. But um, we, we knew the score. And um, but you still did it, um, and you just. I mean, if you if you slow down sort of ten miles an hour on the straight, for instance, because you're a bit scared of a, you're still doing two hundred and ten and fifteen miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, so you're still like going to have a massive loss. You might as well just leave the throttle on and go the whole way, <laughs> <laughs> um, and just hang on there. But but you know, um, the one year I was in a, a different car, and I was given the job of running the Diffin. It was an Aston Martin, which I actually did one race out of my own period in '84. I think it was with uh, with an Aston Martin Nimrod car type car, and I was given the job of running the Diffin. 
which was fantastic mm. uh, because I, I hadn't been in a car for 10 years or more, a uh, race car, and uh, I was given this job to do it. Well, that's wonderful. So you start at, you know, I don't know, 15, not 59, 2,000 maybe revs, 3,000 revs, mm. and you gradually build it up. I got 15 laps to do. Great. <laughs> Get me used to the car and everything. And the gradual increase in speed. And with about three to three laps to go, probably would be the first time that I'd built it all up. And now this time it's going to be foot to the floor. Race pace, as it were. And on you go. Yeah. And the first time I started hearing noises, I mean, the noise on this inside the car, mechanical noises, is just amazing, Mm. loud. And I thought, well, well, hang it on here. There's more noise I hadn't heard before because it's we hadn't gone flat. And uh, I'm thinking, God, what if, what if anything happens now? Sorry. <laughs> but I'm still keeping flat. And then the second time you do that, and it's easier, and the third time, which was the last lap, it's completely normal for me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's... I mean, I had that experience fortunately, but uh, you, as I, I remember, also testing another Can Am Lola down at Goodwood, and um, we'd had this Chevy big engine. You know, oh, I'd never driven anything like that before. But Eric, Eric Broadley got me into the car just to see what it was like, and I thought I went, I went out and kind of, whoa, gee, that's a lot there, isn't it? And so, so I start going, and I'm warming up. Because uh, uh, this car is going to America soon for the Can Am, and um, off, after about three or four laps, I'm I'm now got used to the car in very quick time. You put your foot down, and you think, "Gosh, there isn't any more. You know, there's no more power." <laughs> yeah. So the racers do adapt, and I think a lot of people with um, you know space rocket and all that sort of thing, you know, you know, people who go to the moon, it, you're programmed to do that. Sure. And um, they have so much um, experience outside of the moon rocket mm. that when they get in it, it's probably no different to where they were on the rig on the ground. That's a great yeah. idea, actually. Yeah. I, I'm often fascinated by this mindset, and I've had similar conversations with drivers of this era of, say, Formula One cars, and mm. your very uh, fast uh, WEC cars. Yeah. And I always find it interesting because I think a common comparison or a common analogy that's given to racing drivers um, it's more so i say even with motorcycle riders mm. tt lap record holders um i had a great chat with a chap called peter hickman who's still the outright yeah, TT yeah, lap record holder. Well. <laughs> great guy yeah the or normal guy you would very know. normal absolutely yeah. right absolutely and um i remember talking to peter and saying you know what, what about friends and family? Because, of course, TT's regaled for the dangers. And mm. on average, there are two deaths a year. And it's still, to this day, an incredibly dangerous thing. And I say, you know, one of the things I always enjoy exploring is, do you see yourself or do the riders and drivers of these cars see themselves as exceptionally brave, exceptionally stupid, to, to give it a very plain word? Or is it? something far more complex than that which is actually an understanding of everything an understanding of yes i appreciate the risk completely and utterly but i also appreciate the engineering mm. and i think when you find that balance between the two that's where you open that new dimension of 
bravery, I think is the, the layman's term to use. But it's that confidence in the product, confidence in the car, which in modern day era, I find a lot easier to understand. Again, mm. because of this wonderful world of engineering where everything is bench tested before it's even put onto a car. Mm. But in your era, you were the bench test for a lot of it, weren't you? So did you ever find yourself in scenarios where you thought, do you know what, actually, this doesn't feel great. This this could be so much better. And I guess perhaps even the the early years of the 917 did exactly that for you. But did you find yourself at times thinking, were there times where you can remember thinking, this is a fantastic product, a fantastic car, and I feel very confident driving it. And to the flip side, were there times where you thought, do you know, this is just so not ready for competition yet? Uh, but I think it's just what you do, isn't it? It's mm. um, it's your job, and yeah. you're almost you've programmed yourself, or somehow you get wound into the program. And uh, there, there were quite a few um, quite well-known motorcyclists who actually wouldn't go to the Isle of Man. Mm. I think Barry Sheen was one. Mm-hmm. I think he ever went. And um, but I knew Mike Halewood very well. But. Uh, and I went the year he did his comeback in 78, 79, and I'm so glad I did because it was just amazing what they do. And they are absolute heroes to me. I mean, they are uh, bikers or something else, and I followed Rossi right through his career. It's fantastic for me to have that, to have lived, fortunately for me to have lived through his whole, mm. I don't know, 20-year era. I was so lucky to be in, in that that window but they 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 do it um uh, and they will go on doing it and 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 old, old peter will go on doing doing the isle of man while he's physically able and mentally astute to do it and he knows the the, the road so well mm. and the machinery he drives and he's totally confident in his own ability and everything that's around him to do the job that he does, and he does it better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that that gives you the 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 go. I remember talking to Sterling Moss years ago, and uh, you know he he was uh, exceptional, and he was the fastest driver of his era. And uh, he, he after he'd go try and do a a, a lap faster than uh, as fast as he could and he'd come in and think well now you can you lot you can have another go and see if you can beat that (laughs) and usually they couldn't they couldn't yeah no and it was similar with jim clark and all the other people there's an inner um i don't know belief yes Mm. but that's not the right word it's an inner confidence i suppose yeah Yeah. they just know they're good yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm what I'm keen to understand. Um, so if we just go back to the seventies Le Mans again, leading up to that, like what does a what does a what does the week for you also leading up to that race? What does that week look like? You know, is it is it a very is there a lot of preparation involved? You know, because you know, as again, I draw maybe some comparisons to drivers today, and they mm. will be. Like a hugely, hugely fit, physically fit. They've got physical trainers. They've got uh, psychologists. They've got uh, this, that, and the other. Yeah, they've got masseurs. They've got, they've got food, all of that. Uh, nutrition thing yeah, and everything else, yeah. and all the Gatorade or whatever you have exactly. and everything else. Yeah, they're far better prepared, yes, than we ever were. Um, we uh, we were driving nearly every week, weekend, and sometimes testing as well. So, just for the uh, physical. Uh, work you do in a car was enough to keep you 
up to speed with something like Le Mans. So fitness, and that's all we did. We had no advice. Uh, there were no instructions for Por- from Porsche to say you've got to, um, you know, you got yourself get ready. There's no advice at all. No. Nothing. <laughs> so they relied on you to do your job. Yes. And I think we did. Um, but but I, we were just, we had no help at all. There was no doctor. Nothing. We had no no nothing for the drivers. Wow. Food was provided, but it probably wasn't the right food. No, no. <laughs> like you know, bacon sandwich uh, or something. Nothing was <laughs> in, nothing, but it hadn't been really looked into. Yes, and I yeah. remember doing a race at uh, Monte Carlo in a Formula Junior, and I did completely the wrong thing from what I should have done because I had a, a big uh, fillet steak on the, <laughs> on the beach. And then it went straight to do the race, you know, and it's completely the wrong preparation. (laughs) But we didn't know. How were we to know? There were sports scientists that hadn't been invented. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, it was only happened really until the 1990s, wasn't it, with Schumacher, who was the first to put a real emphasis on maybe if we are fitter and stronger, we'll be better and faster. And everyone else on the grid went, really? Hold on. (laughs) Why why do you need all that? Totally. What, do you mean I can't, <laughs> what do you mean I can't have a cigarette and a coffee for breakfast? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. No, I, yeah. I just I find that fascinating because it's such a contrast. It's such a contrast to where we are today. Hmm. Um, oh, it's a world. It's a world. But the world has changed so much. So well. much, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, sure. and such are such are the margins as well. You know, as as, as we talked about, um, you had to. I think it paid absolute dividends to have uh, a mature mind. Obviously, racing an endurance race like that. Mm. That yeah, you couldn't win it in the first lap and all this kind of stuff, mm. which a lot of drivers obviously still try to get carried away with the moment. They get carried mm. away, mm. Um, and you know to have like years like we have now, where cars are separated by seconds after twenty four hours mm. rather than yeah, laps. You know all this kind of yeah. stuff. I, that just blows me away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but when I when I did, um, I mean, I'd already done before nineteen sixty nine with Porsche. I'd done probably half a dozen Le Mans. And so you know that it's it's a big race, yes. and it's like no other race. And the atmosphere around there, when I think the, the part of the magic for me in that in the sixties era was that um, just before four o'clock, they always used to start at four o'clock in the afternoon, and uh, within the last ten or fifteen seconds of the start. Everything went because the cars weren't start running or anything. You have to yeah, run across yeah. and jump in your car. Yeah, you could you could hear a pin drop. Wow! wow. It, everybody was absolutely hooked into what was going on. Huh. Yeah, that's incredible. not just us. Yeah, and uh, yes, I mean people say you get you get nerves and well, you've got of course you 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 you're building yourself up. Yes, um, you know what's going to be out there, um, but you've done it before. So it's not strange, and you're used to it, and you just do it. It just becomes subnormal for you, I suppose. I don't know. I love the I love the theatre of that. You know, you mm. can imagine all like what forty oh. cars, teams, all the rest. But of you it. just don't get that now. Of course, no, no, no. and then for suddenly everything to just go. Mm. Mm, actually, 
we've got this massive thing ahead of us now. Yeah. Let's yeah. all start. Let's just take it a bit seriously for a moment. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But I think I think that the Lamar start probably was from the, the when they started in the late twenties. I 20s. think it was. Yeah, I think it yeah. was, which was completely novel. So it became the Lamar start. The fact that everybody else well around did it as well. Yes. Um, was you know it was Lamar, wasn't it? And yeah. it's, it's a big name. Love that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'd uh, love to um, rewind the clock a little bit, just into your the kind of the very beginnings of your career because it wasn't necessarily straight into motorsport was it again this is a, a common occurrence in the modern day is that you tend to find pick out any driver on the f1 grid any driver that's doing fairly well in world endurance any driver that's even doing fairly well in touring car they've been put into a go-kart they've been put through a training program they've had a go in single seaters and then off they go and they're given their break provided the bank balance is big enough to have a go into something like formula one but for you in your the early stage of your career you actually started out with Jaguar, didn't you, as an apprentice? Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, and how did the transition from going into a, yeah, at the time, fantastic manufacturer of sports cars then, eventually lead you down the path to getting into a racing car? Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's really followed on, I mean, I think it was my father who um, had probably hadn't, laid a plans for it but it's how it evolved and uh, when I was at 16 at public school I thought uh, I was, I, there was a careers guy came round, and I, I you know we went in to see him interview he went through all the boys in the school and he said well my lad he said well what are you what are you going to be doing when you grow up I said I don't know. <laughs> but a lot of people had already decided, I guess, and you'd be um, one, you'd be that they were going to be a doctor or they have a vet or, oh, a, sure. I don't know, yeah, dentist. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But I thought, that's a really stupid question to ask. Yeah, how are you supposed to know that? Yeah. Yeah. And I have no idea how the rest of it, the, the conversation went, but it was um, quite a few because it was, came out of the blue at me. Yes. Um, but uh, so I left school and um, I... I did. I didn't know what I was going to do, but actually, my father thought. Well, I had an elder brother, and he went to do another apprenticeship with Rolls Royce. So I went to Jaguars. Uh, we we we, we had a, he had garages where he sold both as distributors, so it's quite big. And I I looking back, uh, I found school was quite important while you were there, but when you leave it doesn't mean anything at all that's so true i don't think yeah. it does <laughs> yes. and i and i went to jaguar cars i thought um i didn't really know what i was doing there particularly yeah and uh, the first week i thought after the first week i thought it's just about learning again it's just like mm. school isn't it really yeah. but i but the first line i went down was a crankshaft line and um uh it's a big rusted big huge thing piece of metal quite long and then I, I went down the other end of the line and I saw the finished product. And I thought, my God, I've got a lot of trouble to make that. <laughs> and it was absolutely wonderful to, to perceive it. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. like a gleaming, like chromium-plated finished steel, which looks like that anyway. Yeah. And I went back and, I, and then I've learned that it's got, it goes round mm. and it's got some eccentric pins on there. And it's connected to a rod. And then on the top of that rod, there's a piston. And when it goes up the bore, it goes bang and comes down again. Well, I was absolutely hooked. And I learnt everything about life at, at Jaguar Cars. 
the 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 rough side, uh, people, um, everything. It's uh, it was a wonderful. Apprenticeships are a wonderful thing to have, and uh, they sh- they're coming back now quite oh, big, yes, aren't they? Are. Yeah. And and it's absolutely right because mm. then you learn if you really want to do that or not. Mm. And I didn't really know anything mechanical, but God, now I'm yeah. a mechanical engineer and I can take engine bits and everything else, you know. And that was a wonderful grounding. But while I was there, we did, um, well, early in the days, I, we did some driving tests and I found it was quite handy. I had a little standard tent, <laughs> a little slew car that was only a th- not even a thousand cc. But I found that I enjoyed that, or one of few, a couple of those. <laughs> and um, so they, um, then um, I, I don't know why um, I, I thought, I don't know how I did it, but the first place I went to with my little standard tent had twin carburetors on it, so it was really fast as far as I was going to do about... I don't know, 70 miles an hour without going downhill. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there were, I, I don't know, Goodwood was attracted to me initially straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I don't know why. I'd, I'd been there with my father to watch some racing in the 40s, it would have been, uh, maybe maybe mid-50s. And I went down with my car because you had to, before you could race there, you had to do a, like a proficiency test. Sure. Uh-huh. And it just consisted of, of driving around where you were fastish enough, mm-hmm. not too fast, and you observe for three quarters of an hour. Quite a long test. That's quite a long There's test. a lot of concentration there, you know? yeah. <laughs> And I didn't know how, I'd never been on a track or anything, so I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and in the end, uh, the end of it, uh, I didn't know I had done, but they said, hey, "Yeah, no, no, you're okay." And I, I'd passed, and I was absolutely elated. Yeah. And it took me seven and a half hours to get there because no motorways. Of course. And another yeah, seven yeah. hours to get back. But I got back, and I was as fresh as a daisy. Because I was so elated to yeah, have achieved something. Yeah. So that was the that would have been the equivalent of what is now an FIA race license, I guess. Yeah, which takes about ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> drive drive <laughs> yeah. around some cones, make sure you don't hit one. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that and that was at the Goodwood Circuit. Yes. Oh, and then I I actually then uh, I did a race and um, don't necessarily remember that, but uh, and I don't know where I came in it, but I was in my first race, and there's a. Actually, a photograph in Autosport <laughs> that came out the week later of my little cargo like, <laughs> Goodwood. Wow. So it's this proof is there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And we were saying, weren't we, before we started recording, that Goodwood is now one of the places that you're you're still oh, present yeah. at. You know, you, yeah. you race yeah. at the revival. You were at the members meeting a couple of weeks back. Yeah. Um, it must be so special, and this is one of the things I absolutely love about all of the Goodwood events, because for me, from a personal point of view, I've only known Goodwood as a spectator, and I've been going to the Festival of Speed meetings, the Revival meetings, um, ever since I was a boy. I used to go with my dad, and we'd mm-hmm. go late 90s, early mm-hmm. early noughties, and I'd be there with a little film camera taking photos and things. And to me, it's a, it's a massively special and significant place for me to now go on behalf of the media and to be there and to capture the events that happen and the the races that happen in any form, whether that's photographic or video or, or through an audio format. For me, that feels so special because I have such fond memories of it as a child. 
But for you to be there and to have that wonderful memory of going there as your, here's your first shot at driving a car, shows that you're competent, shows that you're capable, there's your mm. certificate, you're done. And then to start racing there. Now to still be visiting and to still have that magical atmosphere that the Duke has somehow captured there, hasn't it, mm. with, that, with that space. Does it still feel as special now to you as a driver today as it did back then? Well, I think it, I, I think it does because it's in a very special part of uh, England. And um, just to drive down there, and I felt that way back then, that mm. to say, you know, you're going to somewhere special. Mm. It's a great circuit. It's a great challenge. And it was always neat and tidy. And most circuits were not like that. Yeah, sure. Um, but that was because of the, the ownership with the Richmond family. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was, uh, it was, it was special then. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it's always been special to me. And yeah. um, even more so now oh, with God, nostalgia yeah. and everything I, ma- else. I ma- maintain that, you know. I, I remember uh, it was before, just before Revival last year, and I was there doing some filming work. Um, and, of course, this was probably three or four weeks before the Revival event was happening. <clears throat> so I'm having a one round, wander around the circuit, and there was literally a guy with a little paintbrush like this and a little pot of white paint just just touching things up yep. as you're walking around. And I thought, nowhere else do you see that everywhere. <laughs> you just don't. That attention to detail. Yeah. Mm. You know, and we're talking well over a month, two months before, and you, sure enough, you get there and the place is absolutely immaculate, yeah. you know. Well, it's very special. I think the the Duke's training as a cameraman, you know, as mm. a you know, he was a great photographer um, in his own right. Yes, and uh, that's that's where he's got his detail from. But his his grandfather, of course, was one who um, went to Brooklyn and was suce- very successful there. Yeah. And it it just followed in the family, but it must have skipped a generation with. Uh, Charles's father, I think, yes. because he was into horses and yes. something else, and he he didn't have a, a motorsport, uh, didn't have a motorsport running through his veins. That's right. Um, but it more than made up with when uh, Charles, when young Charles came to, to the reins to the March, to, yeah. to run it, yeah, and he was very determined to get racing back, and it it took a long time, mm. and he he started with the festival speed, which started in ninety. Three, I think it was, and right. yeah. uh, I didn't go to the first one, but uh, I've been to every one since. But because uh, I didn't know anything about it, mm. it just happened without me knowing, and I was too far away in Wolverhampton. But um, he, his long term was to get the circuit back, and it took a long, you know, with the local authorities, they didn't want to know. And, and what worried me recent times was the new housing estates yes. that are going up around there and and it's ultimately going to be but hopefully um it will it will continue mm-hmm. uh, because it's established now which is great and uh the the other thing that i would they must never change that circuit no, because no. it is exactly as it was and i said i said to charles even if i die there because of your circuit please don't change it mm. that's incredible no yeah and it'll be my fault if i did more than likely <laughs> <laughs> that's how serious i feel about it yeah, yeah. no it is it, it is such a it, there is a certain element of magic to it and it and what i find fascinating is speaking to so many people from different fields of their industry from a media point of view exactly as you say miles you know running around having 
groundskeepers running around making sure it looks pretty. Um, mm. Your observation there, Richard, about uh, the Duke of Richmond in his early life was a photographer, mm. and which is why, of course, he does have the place dressed up so beautifully. It's also the reason why he is so accommodating to the media, because he understands the work that's needed yeah. to sh- display this amazing environment, this amazing spectacle. Mm. And then for drivers to to go along, and it's it's fascinating, I love speaking to the, the different age brackets of drivers nowadays, including the, the young, very um, prevalent touring car drivers like Jake Hill, who had a... a yeah bit of an incident on on the Saturday qualifying at this year's members meeting yeah, yeah. he put his capri you could say that. went through no name <laughs> lost the back end became a passenger in the car and hit the tire wall but the amazing team put the car back together again he was able yeah. to race the same day then then um, came came back with first place it was incredible it's absolutely story. amazing yeah. Yeah. but it's great talking to people like Jake who is <clears throat> fairly yeah, still fairly young in his in his career and hearing his remarks on the circuit which are so similar to the very established drivers that have been driving there for years and years and years and everyone has the same it's almost like it's terrifying but brilliant mm. and therefore we respect it and mm. it's that's just how it is it's yeah i just yeah. find it yeah so yeah. magical to to learn that everyone has this same understanding and appreciation for mm. this amazing place but of course so. now the um the the current drivers love going to goodwood yeah and yeah. you've got uh, Formula One guys going, and uh, most, most I think, <laughs> the WEC drivers, you know, because yeah. they love it, because yeah. the cars actually move around. Yes, of course. I mean, this, yeah. is, uh, this is, well, this is what driving's all about, yeah. sort of, isn't it? Yeah. A bit yeah. like rally cars, really, because they, they get completely sideways, and they're still under control. And I mean that—that's a car with attitude is what people want to see. Of course, it is. And um, I think that, I think that's why people still, in some respects, relate to things like maybe British touring cars still, because you can see the attitude of the car when it's under braking. Yes. You see it move, and you see them turn in, mm. and it rolls, and you see a bit of mass in the car, as it Movement, were. You yeah. see a bit of energy. Whereas anything modern, aero, all this kind of stuff, it, mm. it just sort of, well, they just arrive at the corner and somehow it just gets around it. Mm. Magical speed. Yeah. Ridiculous yeah. speed, yeah. And I think that is, as, as you say, part of the the magic, if you will, uh, is being able to go and watch those cars that are, they're big, you know, they're not even, not even the big powerful cars. You know, I'm talking like the Cortinas and things mm. like that. They're still a bloody oh, handful. They're all, they're all pretty loose and the drivers yeah. love it. Yeah. Yes. You know, that's what drivers... Race driving should be about, isn't it? 100%. Really? Yeah. Hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. So, so, so we, so we get to the point where you find out that you're, you seem to do all right when you get in a, in a racing environment. You've been, you've been pictured in autosport, and then <laughs> at what point does it go from being, as you say, you know, oh, um, I'm, I, I, I appear to have an ability here to actually getting into a really serious race scenario. Well, I I didn't do much with the standard end the first year, and then um, <clears throat> at the age of twenty, I because um, we were standard draft dealers, so my father bought provided myself and my brother with a TR three A, yeah, and that, to me that was a quite a serious car because it would do over a hundred miles an hour for God's sake, <laughs> and um, so I did a whole basically did a whole series of um, races with that car. Uh, I don't know how many races, lots. Nearly every weekend I was out there, but it was a, it was a basic standard car. It was nothing done to it. It was um, just as it came out of the factory. And uh, so the first, I think it was the first race I went to was at Mallory Park, uh, which was a local circuit mm-hmm. to me. And um, I was in a 
ten, two 10 lap races. One was a scratch race and the other was a, a handicap race. And the handicap race came first. But in those days, it used to be late for most appointments, which I'm not, I try not to be late anyway now. But it's, really, <laughs> it's so embarrassing to be late, isn't it? And it's very rude as well. And so anyway, um, uh, so at Mallory, you can't get into this track inside because there's no tunnel. If, if there's uh, qualifying for everything else was going right. on. Yeah. So, I, so I missed my qualifying for the scratch race. <laughs> but on the handicap race, um, they they just took it as a TR3A driven by May and another, if you like, or whatever. So I was handicapped for there. And I, I won that race. And, um, I, you know, I didn't see any particular reason why, but anyway, I won it. But the guys with other, the other guys with TRs and in my race, for the scratch race, they were looking at this car because from the paddock, you see quite a lot of the circuit. Yes. They saw this car going quite well. So I come in after a handicap race and they say, oh, hi, I'm um, a nice guy. I said, well, yeah, it is. It's brand new. It should be. <laughs> and they said, well, what have you done to it? I said, well, nothing really. <laughs> Put some um, fuel in it. <laughs> said, oh, oh, no, we've got, I've said, I've got the um, the latest one with the bigger liners in. So it was actually now, it's near 2.1, 2.2 litres, you know, over two litres. He said, no, 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 we've got else. Well, we've got all that. What else? What else? What else? So what? Oh, no, the, the wheels now, they've got, <clears throat> instead of 48 spoke, we've got 60 spoke wheels on it because otherwise they'll break. No, no, no. I said nothing. Wow. So but, and, uh, it was even a dimwit like me, I thought, was something they've seen that I haven't. <laughs> Were they expecting <laughs> you to say, oh, yeah, we've had this, this, and this done to it? Yeah. But anyway, the race comes up yeah. and I'm um, on the back and. Uh, uh, it was 10 lap races, so uh, about eighth lap, I've just overtaken either the third or the second guy, I can't remember, but I make a classic uh, dr- race driver's error in that I'm looking at him uh, to make sure he's ah. you know, not challenging me anywhere, and I turn in late for Gerrard's, yes. and I hoik it in, I lose control, hits the inside of the bank, and I've got egg on face, it really was a disaster. Oh, no. But... Fortunately, my father sent um, a, a man from the garage with me in another car, and I don't know if he—I don't think he predicted that, but I don't think. He <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we have to leave the car there because the metal's all on the, on the wheel, so we have to leave that in the scrutinizing bay and drive home with this bloke, Don Buckingham. So my mother's waiting at home. She's um, you know, petrified of me doing anything like this as most mothers would be and um so we 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 arrive home she's she's actually on the doorstep <laughs> and uh, no t- mobile phone she no. didn't know that she just happened to be there and uh so i was dry i was driving the car back and my guy he jumped out of the car and he said he won he won and i jumped out of the other side of the guy said no i crashed i crashed <laughs> 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 Easier to deliver that news when it's you giving it in person <laughs> to concerned mother waiting on the doorstep. I crashed, but I'm fine. I'm here. <laughs> but but going on from that, I do the whole that year, and I I really enjoy it, love it. Uh, but I can only get about fourth in general on scratch races. Although I did win a race at Alton Park in the wet, um, because the Dunlop tyres weren't very good in the wet. 
Mm. Um, race stolen up tyres. You're not meant to drive them on the road as well. You couldn't drive them. Mm. Not meant to, but I did everywhere. I couldn't be bothered by some other wheels and put those on. <laughs> so I always drove with the race stars on. <laughs> and um, uh, so I, what I wanted to do in the winter was to do my car up and modify it with fiberglass panels and camshafts and Faber carburetors and all this sort of thing. So beat all the bugger beat, beating me. And I went, so I met the father with this plant to see if he would fund it or not. He said, oh, he said, we're not going to bother with that, my lad. He said, we're going to get you a Formula Junior. Ah. Well, I, I didn't know what a Formula Junior was. I really didn't. And, of course, a dedicated single-seater. And in those days, there was nothing below Formula One mm. single-seaters mm-hmm. other than juniors. Mm-hmm. No Formula Four, nothing. So if you're going to do something seriously, and this is where I realised my father was quite up for me racing, mm-hmm. and, and not until then. And uh, so he was thinking, we're going down the serious route here now. And that's when I started my three years in juniors in 61, 2, 3. And the race that put me on the map was winning the Monaco junior race at the same time as the Grand Prix, and all the guys are there, all their teams are there, rather wow. Formula One team. Yeah. And that's, at the end of the year, won the most prestigious award for the um, most promising driver and um, so Gilded Motoring Writers, all that sort of thing. And that's when I got a a third driver contract with BRM Mm -hmm. and I uh, got a contract with Ford of America as well. Wow. And so then I turned professional then and that's, that's how it happened. It's magical, isn't it? It to, is. It really is. To learn that that's the process of it. And, I mean, fantastic support. Was the support from your father in, in saying, right, we're not bothering with mm. the TR, we, we're going to go into this. Mm. Was that as a result of, he must have really believed in you. Was he present for all of the races? I, I, do, I think he just wanted to find out fairly quickly whether I was going to make the grade or not. Wow. I mean, so many have, you know, I've known fathers who have, supported their sons and they get so far and then and nowadays you just run out of money yeah. but but then it was you know junior cost about a thousand pounds you know yes. which is i mean it's still a lot of money then obviously but it he didn't he didn't pay for anything himself because he got a garage and he put a business so he will put it through that and yeah. probably allowed to do it at that time for promotional purposes mm-hmm. i don't know but so he actually didn't pay for it, although he, he, you know, if it wasn't he, he for him, I would have needed a sponsor, which I probably wouldn't have found. And there are a lot of drivers who who, who could have got there, but they never had the opportunity because they never, you know, got into a car that was capable of doing something or showing something. Oh, God, yeah. There's, is, there's uh, a lot not discovered that are discovered. 100%. There's so many... Um there's, there's so many incredible talents around that, as you say, don't get recognised. Or there's a lot of luck involved, isn't there? Um, yeah. You know, I was, yeah. I'm a big believer in making your own luck, but there's sometimes things do just have to fall into place at the right time. Mm. I was only chatting to um, Chris Goodwin the the other week, oh, and, he, yeah. and he was obviously he runs a successful team now, Garage Fifty Nine. Yes. And he's 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 like the thing is, Morris, we have got a list as long as my arm of drivers who are. 100% should be pro. Mm. They should be paid as pros. They should mm. fa- have factory drives, etc., etc. But they're still having to bring me £400,000 a year to race. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I, I, it's such is, you know, such is the way things are now. Yes. Yeah. There yeah. should be really a, a school, I suppose, if you qualify to get to the school. Yeah. And then you get all the advice that you need to, the knowledge for 
going forward from that. Yeah. But there isn't such a thing, no, uh, as not. far as I'm aware. No, I mean, no. you get they pick up one driver like um, uh, Hamilton, of course, of course. You know, for a young yeah. age, um, and that that was an exceptional case. But he had a lot of money spent on him to Absolutely, get to Formula yeah. One, yeah. and he was a very lucky guy. But you mentioned um, uh, Chris Goodwin. Yes, actually, his father, in a, a like, something like a little terrier. Was uh, was going to win that handicap race at, at from uh, at oh, Manly Park, right? Oh, no way. And I, I I didn't know. He told me this only in the last half dozen years. No way. <laughs> and I just went by him as the bloody flag was coming out. Unbelievable. Yeah, I didn't know. And I didn't know I was overtaking him to win. I mean, no information coming to me. I was just going no. as fast as I could. Wow. Yeah. And I felt I felt really sorry because he he's such a lovely guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Hello there, John Markar here from the Driven Chat Podcast. Confusingly, you're probably already listening to my voice as part of an existing podcast. But this this is a little separate piece to the podcast that you're hearing because I wanted to mention something exciting that we're now doing at Driven. And that exciting thing is inviting sponsorship opportunities of both the Driven Chat podcast, but also the Driven YouTube channel and the Driven website. As you may or may not be aware, we are quite a big podcast now. We've had more than half a million downloads of our episodes so far and span listeners all over the world downloading episodes every week in their tens of thousands. Now, if this sounds like something that you might be interested in being involved in, i.e. from a sponsorship or a commercial point of view, then why not drop us an email? The email address to use is podcast at drivenchat.com or alternatively, head on over to the website where you will see our contact page, that's drivenchat.com forward slash contact, where you'll be able to get in touch with us and provide a bit more information about your company, your organisation, your brand, whatever it is that you want to promote to the world. We have an awful lot of very engaged listeners, many of whom enjoy listening to our weekly episodes and will enjoy having an affiliated brand on board as a partner. You never know. It may even result in a hugely successful boom in your business. Find out more by dropping me an email, podcast at drivenchat.com. There I'll be able to come back to you with some super ideas, be that monthly episodes, episode by episode sponsorship. Who knows? We can address all sorts of different packages and time spans and opportunities. The first step is getting in touch. The one thing I can say to you is I can guarantee almost that it's not going to be as expensive as you think. Find out more by emailing me, podcast at drivenchat.com, or visit the website, drivenchat.com forward slash contact. Get in touch that way, and I will personally come back to you very soon. Thanks. Now, let's go back to the existing episode. It's good, isn't it? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Driven Chat Podcast. That's one of the other things. You mentioned it before, didn't you, with regards to when you were at Le Mans, thinking back to the 1970 race. And you say you came into the, uh, the paddock, I assume, for a fuel, and somebody whispers in your ear, or shouts, more likely, shouts in your ear, by the way, you're in the lead. Now, I love this yeah. world, because, of course, again, this, we're so far away, aren't we, by modern standards. Yeah. You, you're in the help, you're, you're in the car, mm. you've got at least two voices in your head, in, in your helmet, who are radioing through from the pits. You know exactly what position you're in. You know yeah. how many seconds off pace you are. You know what you need to do to get past the driver in front. And there we are in a world title, world class setting race like Le Mans. And mm. it's not until you come in for fuel that somebody tells you where you are on the field. <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing. I actually, did, I actually didn't believe it. Wow. Because it was so insanely stupid for everybody else. I mean, there was an incident uh, where I think three Ferrari for 512s went off in the same accident. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Three, That's three, boom, out of the race. Yeah. And uh, Joseph and Brian Redman never won them all, but probably the closest he ever got to winning was with Joseph mm. in the 917 in 1970. And Joe, his co-driver, was in the, in the I saw it. He, he was overtaking three or four cars, slower cars before he got to the Dunlop curve, and it was right past the pits. Mm. And in his hurry, his haste, he missed a gear, and the engine went, way uh, sky high yeah. I said and I knew that car wasn't going to come back to the pits mm. but it actually did but it was clattering and clunky and they completely mm. and that's probably the nearest Brian ever got to win a race and he won all the other sports car races more than once mm. most of them yeah so uh, it, it's a Le Mans it's a race I believe that uh, then I don't know it probably may be a little bit now, but no not so much now but the race tended to come towards you or it didn't, you know. And, and if any of those cars in front had, had managed to keep going, they would have won quite easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they didn't, and that's what matters. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's yeah, how it goes. It's in the record books. That's what happens on the day. <laughs> I, I almost want to read through, because, again, for many of our listeners, I, I, I imagine we're going to have a good divide of listeners who will know exactly who you are and the accolades that you have and the cars that you've driven. There'll be a lot of our listeners, perhaps of a slightly younger demographic, that won't be aware of the amazing cars that you've driven. Now, fortunately, I have got a list here, so I'm just going to read through some of the cars that stand out to mm-hmm. me. Um, even early on in your career, you know, driving BRM engine Lotus 25s, it's an exciting thing. You know, now BRM as a brand is celebrated again with the revival of their mm. V16. 60 years, Just yeah. a wonderful, wonderful thing. Mm. But let me work through the list. I think vaguely in chronological order. Oh, no, we might have a couple of overlaps here, but um, another Lotus uh, 49B Cosworth V8, mm. amazing thing. Uh, Brabham BT30 with a Cosworth engine. Uh, BRM P57, that's an amazing sounding car. Lotus 25, uh, lots of BRM products late 1960s. But then as we go forward to the Le Mans era, Lola Mark 6, 
Ford GT40, Ferrari 365, Ferrari 412, Ferrari 275LM, and then, of course, the Porsche 917, the 917Ks as well, mm. uh, in 1970, 1971. Um, and then all the way, up, let's go up to the 1980s, 1984, in the Nimrod NRA C2B. These are hero status cars now, aren't they? I guess I'd, I'd be fascinated to know how you felt about them at the time of driving them. Did you realise perhaps things like the Ford GT40, there might have been some clues there that eventually someday this is going to be a, a celebrated hero car. But at the time, were these just, was it a phone call that came in and said, right, how do you feel about getting in this Ferrari 412? Or did you think at that time, no, this is a, this is a special moment? Um, well, you're always looking for a car that had good potential to actually do well and maybe even win. And um, <clears throat> getting in the right car was a major part of organising your life to be able to do that. Sure. Um, and that wasn't always possible. Um, but uh, I, think, I think the Lola GT was the most amazing car. And I've, I've saw one, in <clears throat> fact, I drove one uh, at the Festival of Speed mm-hmm. about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And... The car was so clever because it was so small mm. compared to a GT40. And the GT40 came from that same drawing board. Yeah. Um, and for me, the, the, they only made three. And um, I, asked, I asked Eric once that I wanted to, to build one, you know, to build another one. And he said, well, you know, got to have a donor car. So... Um, well, at first, sort of two or three years, I couldn't find one. But then I, f- I, f- I heard of one, and I asked the guy who owned it. I think it was in Germany. You know, could we borrow the car to do that? And he said, yeah. And then I went back to Eric, but he, he couldn't be bothered. He was too then involved with probably, with, you know, making indie cars or something, okay. which was far more important, so yeah, it never yeah, happened. Yeah. But um, that, was a, that was a very clever car. Wow. Very clever, yeah. Yeah. But the other ones, I mean, yes, I mean, I drove uh, for a lot of Ferraris, but yeah. they were, un- unfortunately, mostly they were concessionaire cars. Now, uh-huh. Ferrari had concessionaire in uh, Belgium, um, and in the UK it was um, Marinella Concessionaires run mm-hmm. by Ronnie Hall. And they were always uh, cars with a development below the factory cars. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, we were there, I, I always think, that if all the factory cars failed, they could still possibly win under extreme ex- circumstances. One of the concessionaires' cars could win. But they didn't want to be challenged by the concessionaires having the same power. Uh, yes. I mean, uh-huh. if there was... Um, uh, if the factory had a three-valve engine, you'd have a two. Yes. And if okay. it then became four, then you might get the three. Mm. And if you were, they were on injection, you go on carburetors. So you never could get really near the, the works car. So that was two years of that, or was that maybe three years of that. And the... Um, what? Uh, I drove... Yes, the GT40 I drove in 64 which was the, the first year of the GT40s. Yeah. And, um, but they, they only rented two races, um, Le Mans, three cars, and Reims, 12 hours, three cars. And they, they didn't finish any races. Mm. And uh, Henry Ford got to hear about this. He wasn't very happy about that. And then 
I think they're, they're still running the cars in 65 when I was running them in, in for, again, for, for Ronnie Hall, but it was through his Ford distributorship, F English, down in Bournemouth. So he ran a car for me there. Um, and then uh, they didn't do any good the following year, and that's when Henry Ford said, right, Let's spend a load of money. Seven litres, <laughs> cubic capacity, get yeah. on with it. Yeah. And, uh, of course, they blitzed it, That's it two years in a row. So that would be it. And, yeah, then, and then the old cars from 64, essentially the same. John Mar was running still in 67 and 68 or 68, six, yes, 60, 68 and 69. Mm. Won both those races in the old, in the cars, the original cars. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think this is uh, this is what's uh, always missed from the story, isn't it? You know, when you hear, obviously, you have success at Le Mans, mm. which is that's the headline, isn't it? Yeah. But what people, what doesn't reach the headlines is the five to ten years of build up of yeah. obviously your racing career, mm. but also just driving different cars and just obviously having attempts at even finishing yeah. is like finishing the race is a big enough thing on its own, <laughs> you know? So, you know, you look at, you know, we, we're looking at the same sheet here, John, and there's, there's so many, there's so many DNFs and that must be, mm. that must be a that must, must be hard to keep coming back and come on. We want to finish this year. We not only want to do well, we, obviously, but we want to finish. Mm. Is, is that, is that tricky? Is that on your mind, or uh, certainly with Le Mans, it was, yeah, yeah, um, because uh, yeah, I, did, I didn't finish in '63, didn't finish in '64, didn't do '65 because I was, got some burns from the British Belgian Grand Prix. '66 uh, and '67 with the Maranello Concessionaires, and actually, there's one story there. Um, it was a P two, P two. Think it was three six five P two um, with David nineteen sixty six sixty six. I'm yeah. talking about. Am I talking? Yeah, yeah. sixty six. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It. yeah. Um, I think it's a P two. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, we had a we did qualifying, and um, essentially Ronnie Hall had uh, four cars entered that race. He had that car, GT forty. A GTBC GT car competition car. Mm-hmm. And Odino, Odino, ah. small Dino. Well, I didn't want to drive a Dino because then you get overtaken by everybody. And I've always, fortunately, been at Le Mans, I've always been in a car that you don't have to look behind too much because yeah. you, you're, you're in the fastest car. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I didn't want the Dino. That was written off straight away. I didn't think the GT40 would ever finish, and it and it uh, that car would definitely not have finished. So that was out of it. Um, then it was between the the P2 and the GT the GT car. Well, I wanted the overall thing, not the GT car. So it was really going to be the the, the P2. Yeah. And just um, before the race, um, he was only going to enter three cars, but he decided he got the P2 was at the factory, uh, not doing anything there. Um, but he asked the factory to do it up to get ready for the ball about three months before the race. So, and I saw it arrive on the factory uh, transporter, and the old one, the Bertolotti or Berlier or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that arrived on top. It looked, it looked a fantastic looking car, mm. a very pretty car. And um, so we did qualifying. And uh, just before the end of qualifying, the, the drive belt, the V drive belt, 
fell off uh, the running the water pump and the alternator, <coughs> I guess. Just a simple engine. There weren't lots of bits flying off it. Uh, you know, other... Because oh, there is just that. And um, so I, I got, it, got it back to the pits. And um, so my qualifier's finished now. So I said to the guys, so have, you got, um, have you got some fan belts? I said, oh, yeah, we've got lots of fan belts. And I'd had some experience because I prepared my junior for the first year or so, and I knew quite a bit about just things like that. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, yeah, we've got lots of V-drive belts. They're all the right size. He said, yeah, 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 they're all the right size. I said, um, have you got one that's been pre-stretched? Because mm-hmm. you had to run them. When you're going racing, you have to run them first uh, for some time, not fast, because yeah. they, they would just get turn over on their backs and fall off. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I said, well, if you have got a pre-stretched one, ready to race, you know, hanging on the wall. And they said, uh, no, we haven't got one. I said, well, okay, well, I think we're not looking too good for them all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they said, okay, well, well um, anyway, so they put a new belt on, and Friday's a free day, so we ran the car, up and down the roads, mm-hmm. which the French loved anyway. Yeah, completely yeah, illegal, but they don't mind. <laughs> and uh, we tried to run it in, and then they put uh, they. Anyway, we start the race, and uh, my first lap, and the belt falls off. Oh, kidding! So our, our race is finished before mm. the end of the first lap, and that happens at Le Mans a lot. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily the first lap. So then I, you can't replenish with oil and water for the first, because all the water will have gone. Mm. You can't replace uh, replenish any water for 25 laps. That was the regulation. Wow. Okay. That's probably still the regulation. Yeah, okay. And so I had to drive the car, getting in everyone's way, for 25 laps. Wow. Which took about, I don't know, towards two hours, I think. Yeah. Gosh. And it, the car kept going without any water in it. There was nothing in it when I came in. Wow. Nothing. And you're just crawling around at this point. Yeah. Just begging not some, oh, someone to just, not crash just, into you. I mean, just uh, looking out the back the whole time. Um, and there's a picture somewhere of um, of McLaren in the GT4 Mark II, I think. Yeah. And they, they won the race. And there's a picture somewhere of me and this car. And one, one of the cars is going real slow <laughs> and the other one's storming along. But it looks like we're in the... <laughs> we're not. <laughs> um, anyway, we're coming after 25 laps and um, they have to let the car cool down, of course, because they, they put water in, you crack everything. Oh, God, yeah. <clears throat> so eventually they got some hot water and they, anyway, they start the engine up and you run it very, very carefully to fill it up to the top. Yeah. After about a long time, they get it right and they, well, okay again. And the new belt on. And so Ronnie says, well, I've done all the, I was driving with David Piper. Uh, he says, well, Ronnie said, well, we think you should go out in it because, you know, uh, see if it's any good. So I went out and I uh, did um, some two or three laps really slow because I didn't want to say anything happened. Mm. And uh, so I went out probably only two and a half, three thousand or something like that. And then eventually wound up a little bit more, about three and a half, four thousand. And then I thought, well, it seems all right. Then do a little bit more. And it wasn't anything like Max. And it fell off again. <laughs> That was it. 
No way. And that was it. Was that really it then? No point. No. God. I suppose the morale can only take a a certain number of hits before you then end up going, right, that's enough now. Well, (laughs) that was gut wrenching. Yeah. I had enough endangering myself being in a a traffic that I was in the complete in the middle of. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody could have walloped me up the backside or. Yeah. But I mean, there was no point. I, mean, yeah. I hadn't got the item you needed, which was. You know. yeah. So that was that's just one Lamore gone. I mean, and that's how Lamore can be for for many times. It um, yeah. took yeah. me a long time to finish. The first race time I finished was with David Piper and his LM in yes. the LM. Yeah. yeah, of course. And, um, and this is nineteen sixty-eight. That, that's another story, but it would take too long. <laughs> but, but okay. it's, a, it's a wonderful story. But we'll go on to anything else you want to ask. I think. Yeah. So so so. You have a taste of what it's like to finish, which is obviously a big, big deal. Mm-hmm. So then we move into the Porsches eventually. Yeah. But even so, as you say, that has that takes some time of driving different specs of cars and et cetera, et cetera, to the point where, as you described it, you end up in a car that's it's low stress, mm. but it's not fast. Yes. And you know that from day one. Mm. Uh, yes, I mean, in, um, you, you're talking about the first year with the yeah. long guy. Yeah. You see, I, a lot of people think I did a lot of testing with that car. Mm. I didn't do any testing. Nothing with at all. The first time I'm going to drive it is to qualify at Le Mans. Wow. Now that that's not that's not the right way no, to prepare no, a driver to do Le Mans, is it? No, no, no. Really, no. but actually, years later, and it was at the festival speed uh, when Vic was over about. Um, Oh, 10 years ago, seven years ago. Yeah. And uh, he actually chose me to drive with him mm-hmm. in that race. He didn't ask me. <laughs> he just said, oh, he'll drive in, with me. I yeah. <laughs> love that. And I knew, I mean, everybody knew the histrionics of the 917. I mean, the first race it did was at um, Spa. Yeah. That was the first one. That was in probably April, May time. And that was the first race. And, they, uh, and Ferdinand Pieck was so insistent that the car raced because you find, you find a lot more iron about the car yes. in a race and you testing. So he was it. And, and it was assigned to the two German drivers, uh, Gerhard Mitter and Udo Schutz. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is a German thing. So obviously they can get on with that. And, and nobody else was, you know, we're all stepping away from the, the 917 because we heard how difficult it was in testing and all that sort of thing. And uh, anyway, so uh, it's uh, in qualifying. I don't know what they did, but they obviously weren't gunning for it because it just wasn't able to do that. I don't don't know how fast they were going. I don't know that. But uh, that was in the dry. And Udo Schutz, um, I I was talking to him at a, a reunion at the Solitude about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, and we discussed about that race and um, because it, 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 the engine broke on, in a mysterious way on the first lap. And uh, he was in a hotel with his bedroom was near to the road. And he then knew from the sound of the cars going by that it was raining. Uh-huh. Now, this car in the rain would have been wow, seriously yeah. bad. Yeah. Anyway, the day before, they'd tossed a coin and uh, Gerhard Mitter was driving mm. first so Udda knew he was free for, for at least an hour and a half <laughs> and uh, the race starts and within two or three quarters uh, the engine goes oh. and we both I said do you think Gerhard 
just gave Ed a, a massive... Ah, interesting. Other subtle, he said, I think so. Wow. Really? That shows you how bad that car was. Wow. It does. Gosh. And there are many stories similar to that where incidents have happened, and that also shows how bad, how difficult the car was. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, the John Wolfe story is another one. Mm. And Digby Martin was John's uh, co-driver yeah. down to yeah. run that car. Yeah. And uh, John Wolfe was insistent on starting the race because he'd got a lot of uh, business people and his family and everything else. And he bought the car with his own money. Yeah. And uh, he was going to start. Like the factory realised there was a problem from what we were telling them back yeah. after qualifying. And uh, they, they, um, they tried to persuade John not to start because Digby Martin had tried the car and to qualify Le Mans he had to do three hours, three, no, three flying laps in the day mm-hmm. and then three laps in the night. So Digby goes out, he's quite a good uh, Chevron driver in the, in the 60s, he's a good peddler. And um, so he does his, uh, probably on his last flying down the Bullseye Straight says, God, I'm going to be racing this soon. I better find out a bit more about it. <laughs> so, of course, he goes into this curve I've been talking about down the straight. Yes, the king. Well, king. he completely loses control. Uh, the whole thing goes for five or six hundred metres with smoke and, oh, wow. and he doesn't hit anything. And he drives slowly back to the pits <laughs> with his underpants probably in a distressed state. <laughs> <laughs> he gets out of the car and he goes home. Really? And I think that's really brave. Yeah. Because he knew the car was bigger than he was. Wow. Yeah. He just thought... Now, that shows it, I don't think. And, yeah. of course, John Wolfe's first... first uh, apparently, uh, I've learned all these things later, later on, but... Uh, of course, that car didn't qualify that well, mm. but he'd been um, he'd been loaned one of the factory test drivers, Herbert Linger, to drive with him, mm. and the factory wanted Linger to drive the car first to yeah. just get it on the way. Yeah, yeah. But he couldn't be dissuaded, so he, he, so he 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 was down on the grid, and of course, you get the straight nine or seven quick car. Mm. It's not so overtaking people easily. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I talked to him a little bit earlier about getting carried away with the moment. And, I, of course, he comes out of, uh, gets as far as I know, and come out there and another long straight into the, the cutting. The White House was a big corner mm. with uh, uh, banks all around you and just an alleyway to get through, no escape there. And that's where he came unstuck. Mm. Again, that's another thing I told you how... Difficult the car was, yeah. and it was. Yeah. You, you know, it shouldn't have. He shouldn't have been there. Today, he probably wouldn't be there. But apparently, one of the drivers recently, maybe this year or the year before, I think the organisers saw it. They saw him come out of the pits, and he did something, and uh, he obviously didn't know what he was doing. Ah, I don't know if it was an amateur or someone. I yeah. Don't know. Anyway, they, they called him in and they, they said, you're not racing here. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. That's something, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know about that. Uh, I, I, I don't know who it is. I don't no. know. I just heard about it. I think it's true, but I don't yeah. know that. But I, cu- I can understand that. Mm. I can understand that for mm. sure. Um, yeah, I've seen it in, in... Somebody might know. Yeah, if maybe so. Oh, so that's my bit of homework. It's either last year or the year before. I don't yeah. know. Well, that's the thing that amazes me about Le Mans to this day is that you can enter as an amateur team, can't you? You can mm. you can go in with a few races under your belt, 
Few yes, if you've got the money license. and everything, as you buy yeah. a car and get on with it. That's yeah, it. yeah. 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 Like, we see it a lot. I, I suppose I see it a lot with, with the racing that I do as well. Yeah. You know, it's like a lot of people now jump. Uh, jump a few steps, you know, you can mm. afford to, well, you can afford to get yourself straight in a GT4 car or a GT3 car pretty much. So within, mm. yes, it mad, mad to think, yes, within six races, your license, you can go, well, yeah. you go. Yeah, here's okay. a, here's a 500 horsepower <clears throat> GT3 car, yeah. you know. Or five races in a weekend doing some volunteer, uh, Marshalling. All that. Yeah. 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 And away you go. So there's your GT3, off you pop. Tick yeah. that off yeah. Yeah. Try to try Anyway, to now you've done that, off you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, try, if you could debunk a rumour for me, which I don't know if this is true or not. As you alluded to earlier, the chassis and everything about the car, they were made to be lightweight um, for obvious reasons. Was it such that they would pressurise the chassis? in order for drivers to be able to see if there was cracks forming? Well, I uh, I can't hand on heart say that I drove a car where I was looking at a gauge. Mm. But they did use a Schrader valve, a tyre valve. Yes. It was, it was wound into the back of the chassis because all the pipes, all the things were connected. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they could blow it up to see if it was a... Uh, yeah, because that would tell them if there was a crack somewhere. Yeah, sure and, and, and that's how the cars were made, that delicately. <laughs> yeah. So you can understand that, you know, with your feet at the front, you got you would be the legless driver if you had a front-end shot with that because you've got a bit of fiberglass, a headlight, an oil cooler, and that's it. And then, and then yeah. your legs. Yeah. Yeah, crumples yeah. around your ankles, aren't they? <laughs> um, do you still get excitement watching modern-day Le Mans? Do you still follow it? With the same level of interest. Well, it's a long race, isn't it? <laughs> and I, when it's when it's bedtime, I go to, I go to bed. <laughs> but actually, I've um, I went with um, Audi very kindly took me to Le Mans uh, to host some of their guests mm. um, for several years, and um, uh, it was wonderful to go back to see it done in the modern way. Yeah. And I could see how people would stay up now to see yeah. because the information is is there. Oh, of course, and yeah. they, with all their hospitality things, Audi had you could you could sit in, you could almost lie down on, on a I'm an angle thing and you could look at the screen mm. and you well, you'd probably fall asleep anyway. But <laughs> but you could watch the race and it's yeah. all detailed there. That's right. And you see someone's had a pit stop and yeah. and it's the information now. Is so much more. Yeah. I mean, it's you're loaded up with stuff, aren't you? With, yeah. with uh, which, and we had nothing. I mean, when you're out on track, we had um, a signal board at um, the Molzan corner. As you come mm. out of there, you go slow enough, you have time to take in what's what's written there, you know, <laughs> yeah. and your lap times and all that sort of thing, and how many laps to go before you have to come in. But uh, that's all. The, that's all we had. Wow. We didn't have anything else, yeah. and people can't understand that no. now with all this modern technology. What? That was it. Yeah. Uh, so you couldn't tell them anything, and they they could only tell you what they could put on the board, which would be yeah, laps to go. Mm. You know, you're, I was insisting on having my times every lap because to try and keep them as consistent as possible. Mm-hmm. Sure. It used to be quite impressive to do that. Yeah. But, um, I, I, I had a conversation with um, uh, with another a driver that had done Le Mans probably ten years ago now, and he was talking about so he, he would he was having a chat with Andy Wallace, and he'd done he'd done some laps um, in a TVR a TVR at the time when they were yeah. doing it. Obviously, pretty scary machine. Mm. 
And he was referring to the fact that he was driving down the Mulsanne Strait. And then at one sense after the other of his started to drop off. So as he's getting towards the higher speeds, the hearing starts to fade. Oh. And he, he, everything started to go quiet in the cabin. He thought, oh, what's going on here? And then the next thing was the colour in his eyesight started to drain away as well. And he thought, there's something really wrong with me here. Um, and as, as he gets towards the breaking point, starts to slow down, blah, 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 back through the gears, and the, the noise of the engine and everything starts to come back and the colour in his vision, all this kind of thing. And he said, he go, apparently he goes and has this conversation with Wallace and he went, yeah, did you lose your hearing? Yeah, yeah. What about the colour in your eyesight? Yeah, yeah, we know all about that. And it was basically his, whatever it was, his brain shutting down certain parts it didn't need just so we could focus such wow. on doing the job of driving, obviously, and looking for where braking points were and all this kind of stuff. I just found that absolutely yeah. fascinating. Really? Yeah, really. I I, clearly, this is news to you. Yeah. Right? So yeah. his body was um, changing. Prioritising. Prioritising different senses as he, was, yeah. as he was driving. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I'd, nev- I'd never I've heard, never of, that heard of that before. I've never heard of that. no. no. I do enjoy hearing those kind of sensory experiences. I remember having a great chat many years ago with Jan Mardenborough, who famously went through the Gran Turismo Academy, did very well driving in simulator and computer games, and then was offered the opportunity yes. to drive a car for the first time. And then did, he's done fairly well at Le Mans and various other series. Yeah. And I remember the one thing that Jan said to me that I'd never allowed myself to process was, you always expect the sensation, the forces, the G-forces accelerating and braking. You always expect the noise you're expecting that because but the one thing I never accounted for was the smells mm-hmm. and you know the, the the difference the differences you'd go through in the cycle of the car as the brakes got hot as the clutch got hot as the oil got hot as everything else and he said it was the one thing I never thought of was the fact mm. that you'd smell these different things and you could tell so much about what the car was doing and how the brakes had bedded in in accordance to the smell that was being funneled yeah. through from the vents. Yeah, they're, they're not so, uh, that well insulated. I mean, no. they, you know, the uh, airtight and all that. So it yeah. doesn't. Well, I don't know if it exists now, but um, there was a time when uh, air conditioning was going to come on. I don't know if, it, if cars are air conditioned now to try and keep but the drivers cool. Depends on the car, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's a GT. But, they, but they have to. They have the regulations say you've got to keep them to a certain level, don't they? Mm-hmm. And I think there's a way of jiggery pokering, but that way you can somehow full I don't know because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you don't want to slow the car down with air no, conditioning that's you? It. I think most of them are now electronic standalone units almost like an auxiliary unit that mm. gets plumbed in so they're not quite as efficient as say a, a belt driven air conditioning compressor uh, but it means that they can run remotely to cool the di- drivers down a little yeah because yeah, yeah. Uh, we didn't have any of that either. no luxuries like that in, no. uh, in your era no now talk to me about modern day because you are still involved. We mentioned, didn't we, Goodwood, that you're, you still attend various race meetings there. But you also are often in the passenger seat of modern day cars, still giving some guidance here and there, aren't you, with Porsche? Yeah, instruction wise, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How does that compare to yeah, what what you used to do? Cars now, modern cars and modern fast road cars are just so capable now, aren't they? And I'm thinking GT4, GT2, GT3 Porsche products are just incredible out of the box mm. do they still excite you in the same sort of way i i do i used to do a lot of um I, well not a lot but i occasionally would do track instruction mm. but I, I don't tend to do that now mm. um the the modern um uh, supercars now have a lot of g mm. and when you get older you don't put up with that too well mm. and um 
electric cars it's like a switch isn't it i mean they're so to me they're violent in mm. the car and um you know andrew frankel was de describing um what it's like to do this on some hugely fast car mm. and he said he, he he experienced it the the first time but he didn't really he didn't really want to do that again mm. and i understand that yeah uh because it's 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 one thing to have you you know you go back, but when you when we were at the Porter Centre, you have to do the the full on break as well. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so you're gathering more than two two G. Yeah, I don't really need that. That's staggering. Like yeah. you know, for full yeah. context, for you know, a, 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 that's a big number. To, anything over two G is a big bloody number. Well, I'm imagining it's two G. Yeah, I'm I, sure it no, is. No, it is. I, it, yeah, it's, it's funny you should mention it because I only watched yesterday a, a video on the car, new GT3 car. The cars weigh so much, yeah. so you've mm. actually got a lot of grip. downforce, yeah. Yeah. Yes, and that's, that's right. digging the tire into the tarmac, and you are stopping. Yes, yeah. and it's to show people <clears throat> that if they think they're getting somewhere near uh, uh, something they've got to do, hit the brakes mm. and and. You know, stay away, you away from many solid objects. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, that's that, that's that's impressive. Like you say, I, I, you're referring to the. I'm assuming the Porsche Centre at Silverstone, which is yeah. we were chatting just before, <clears throat> just before we started recording about that. And mm. so, by all accounts, when you buy a Porsche product, then you basically get invited along yes. to go and have a play around. Um, which obviously you're a part of. And uh, the fascinating thing that we both agreed <laughs> on. Was that um, the women are always far more receptive to oh god <laughs> see the instruction and yeah. actually you know a bloke comes in nah, I don't need I, I know what I'm doing yeah. and then the wife steps in and actually drives far 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 better yes. I love to see that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um, well I'm always I always feel we're at risk when when leading towards the wrap up times of podcasts like this that we've missed huge chapters but I'm sure there will be times where our paths will cross. Again, yeah, thinking about these Goodwood events that you <coughs> attend. Uh, are you? Have you got a presence at the Festival of Speed coming up in a couple of months? Yes, uh, I'm working for Porsche there, um, which is an annual thing, really. <clears throat> and I'll be driving uh, the fast road cars mm -hmm. or uh, sometimes, usually, the museum cars. Great. Uh, yeah, the older cars, yeah. which, of course, is, I mean, I've driven a lot of the old Le Mans winners, mm. which I never drove in period. And it's, uh, it's a great experience to do that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And the, they're always well prepared and just turnkey operations. They're all turnkey operations. They're just fire up and off you go. Yeah. Even the 917 now is because um, if you're tootling around a lot like you do at the festival speed, but now that the, the 917 that they've got now has got um, different ignition packs, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And the, it's a good old whack game of spark plugs. They, they don't, you know, they don't get wet. No. They're, uh, they've been modernised a little bit. <laughs> just on that side yeah <laughs> and then of course later in the year revival yeah uh, what tends to be your do you, do you get much of a say in what you get to drive or is it a phone call a month uh, or so beforehand no I, I good would uh, do, sort things out yeah and there are certain they have drivers on, on a list and um, pro-am right so mm. that we're talking about already um, and, but somebody might want me to drive a car individually in a race but uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's quite exciting to know that you don't know. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, yeah. But uh, usually the, the owner will have a list of drivers to choose from and um, and then a reputation might decide whether I get a drive or not. Sure. But um, 
Yeah, no, I've I've been lucky to have drives uh, every time. Mm. Um, but my problem I see is that um, all these other modern drivers mm. want to enjoy themselves a good bit. Yeah. Which going to, you know, eventually I'm going to drop off the list, aren't I? Because they've got the current winners now, not yeah. about the old ones. Oh, I, think, I think there'll always be a place for you. I Absolutely. Place well, I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> well, I find it interesting. Again, another old work colleague of mine was the, the is the fantastic Derek Bell. And uh, I always find it interesting. I was talking to Derek a number of times about Goodwood and... Uh, and he just flat out now says, don't race the revival anymore. I'll do a parade lap if they want me to. I'll mm. I'll do a, a, a demo that doesn't want to race because he just doesn't enjoy it anymore. And, yeah. and he was Who's saying, that? Derek Bell. Okay. Oh, yeah. yes, I yeah. know. Yeah. Well, do you know, Derek had uh, the most amazing um, golf thing when he was driving with John Moore. Yes, yes. He had an insurance thing. Did you talk to you about that? No. He, he was covered uh, up until... I think quite recently you need to talk to him about yeah. it, mm. uh, and that lapsed, uh, and then he got quite nervous about things. Right, interesting. Yes. Yes. that makes sense. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. I think that's probably yeah. why. But Maybe I that had an influence. That definitely would have been an element to it. I think, in his words, he was saying yeah, he realised that he wasn't as quick as he always was. He realised, as you say, there's a lot of people out there to have a good time and to try and win, mm. and it for him the enjoyment just stopped. And mm. I think it was more. You know, he's happy to do the demos. He's happy to. Yeah, to drive some cars. I understand that. that. I do. Yeah. I respect yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Completely. absolutely. Completely. Yeah. Well, let's make a pact to make sure that we bump into each other and cross paths at both the Festival of Speed and Revival because it's always fun. I, you'll, you'll find Miles and I roaming around with microphones in hand, talking yeah. to drivers usually in the assembly area mm. uh, or um, soon after a race or a, a, a hill record. That's if I can peel miles out of the car because you have loosely been promised to drive up the hill at the festival yes I'm still working on that but it's been <laughs> you haven't got there it's yet. been dangled go see Porsche I'll get you I'll find you <laughs> there we go there we go <laughs> if Praga doesn't work out then exactly. Porsche can sort it there we go yeah. we're gonna we keep working on that one so but yes um, you've heard it here recorded I'm gonna go and speak to you if it doesn't all work out <laughs> yeah, well, I probably think well yeah, you've had enough of my time I'm not talking to you anymore <laughs> Fantastic. Um, if people want to learn more about you, I know that you're quite prolific on social media, aren't you? You've got your own Instagram account. Well, I account. am through my, uh, my son-in-law. Yeah, she's very cute. And here's us thinking it was all you. He, yeah. set, he set me up, though. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yes, if you want to go and uh, check out uh, Richard on um, Instagram, you can do that. Richard Atwood Motorsport, I believe, is the handle. I'll double-check that and put it in the bio. Because, uh, yes, some great uh, great photos and stories and occasional anecdotes on there. Um, but otherwise, if there's... Um, yeah, if there's, is there anywhere else people can go to learn more about you and your wonderful life? Um, well, Goodwood for sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, we've got um, we've got a track day coming up on the June fifteenth at Castle Coombe, which we did last year. Fantastic. And we've got a lot of Porsche owners coming to that. Great. Um, but the one or two spaces left. Aha. Yes. Always. Perfect. So they can get through. Well, Stephen probably Stephen probably answer it anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. So find he's, those social feeds. As I say, I'll include the links below. He certainly is. He's done a sterling job of <laughs> setting up actually, today's yeah. interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess that just leaves us to say a, a huge thank you. Thank you for coming in and giving us a bit of okay. your time. It's always fantastic to unpick some of these great stories and memories, which I feel for many which are just so far especially the young generations younger than us now are so far beyond comprehension the idea of racing without any 
assistance and the safety levels and cars without testing. And I feel that if we don't share these stories and tell these stories, people will eventually mm. assume that they never happened. So it is amazing to be able to hear. Well, they're chances you have to take. Yeah. 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 We do. Otherwise, you go backwards. That's yeah. it. Yeah. What a great metaphor to end. No, really. Thank you very much for your time. It's been fantastic. Okay. Thank All you. Right. Pleasure. Okay. Thank you. And there we have it. Ta-da. Ta-da. As if by magic, we've reached the end. <laughs> um, what a great, great, great man. Um, we actually continue talking, which is often the way with uh, episodes like this. We finish recording and then we end up just having a bit more of a general chat for about 15 minutes about life, the world, racing cars and just general chit chat uh, <laughs> my favorite part of my favorite part the bit that caught me off guard at the end was when we were finished calling you went so miles who are you <laughs> <laughs> you're oh. used to it though yeah true <laughs> hang on a minute who what let you in the you building do? yeah no i think it i think once he his ears are pricked up at the point of racing driver and opportunity to drive at the festival of speed and i think there he was like oh hang on a minute this guy's this guy's worth finding out more which, which is fair Oh, I suppose so. But yeah, absolutely, you know, incredible conversation had with him. Um, you know, under, I, I suppose, with the research that we do leading up to these podcasts, we, mm. we know a little bit about the man and the yeah. story. Uh, but as ever, as we start to unpeel the layers, a lot more comes out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really a fascinating chat. Uh, hope you enjoyed that as well, dear listener. You can, of course, let us know. You can do so by leaving some feedback. Uh, these are your beautifully uh, seamlessly segued parish notes and calls to action that go in at the end of our episode so uh, if you would like to leave us a positive review for this week's podcast please do you can do that on apple podcasts uh, by writing some kind words and leaving us some five star reviews i know it's crass asking to be liked on the internet that's generally speaking not something you should do but uh, in the world of confusing algorithms and podcasts it's something that we're told we have to do so this is me doing it um there it's done uh, in other news um a, a massive thank you thank you to everybody that has been in contact via social media comments dms with regards to the goodwood members meeting episode which is now three weeks ago but we are still getting amazing feedback from that episode um it's that was a monster that one wasn't it gosh it, it was, was huge monster. it was huge and it's so difficult I can't, it's such a difficult thing to try and explain to people. And in fact, I found myself having this conversation with family over the weekend. You, it, it, it can be so easy to assume that everything that you're hearing has been planned. However, nothing had been planned. Nothing. You can't plan an event like Goodwood in any capacity. You can have a rough idea of people that you might want to speak to, but there's no point in making any let's meet at this time in this location because you can't because everywhere you go you're being pulled apart you there are people there who want to have a chat there are things that you just distract you um it's impossible so that event uh, and that podcast as a result of that event uh, was a huge effort um and i want to say my thanks again to tom who'll be uh, listening to this as our editor um but yeah tom essentially is the is the guy that takes the bucket of noise from events like that and somehow engineers them into sounding yeah <laughs> polished and brilliant so a big thank you to tom and a massive thank you to everyone that has taken the time to just reach out even if it's just a little comment on uh, on social media you know underneath a, a photo from the event it makes a massive difference to know that people 
people are enjoying it. I see the stats. I see the hundreds of thousands of people that listen. But when I actually see a comment from somebody going, I really enjoyed that conversation, it really does mean the world. So a big thank you, heartfelt thank you to everyone that has taken a moment to uh, give some feedback in that way. Indeed. And we do, I know it's said often, but we do genuinely read all the comments yeah. and all the feedback. And of course, you know, it helps us steer which way uh, the podcast goes and the other yeah. content. So equally if you have any ideas people you would like to hear from yes do let us know yes and let them know that's always fun i love it when occasionally we'll get tagged in a twitter conversation or a, a, a an instagram comment you you should talk to driven chat uh do that because it is it always good fun occasionally it does work yeah. we have had guests come on as a result of going right i've been pestered to uh, to come on your podcast and here we are um right there were some other course of actions i've not written them down so i can't really remember ah youtube yes we've got some new stuff on youtube that you're probably going to enjoy watching the recent road test i spoke about in last week's podcast with amy shaw i had the hyundai i30n uh that video review is up now, if you would like to go and have a look at it, it's on our YouTube channel. Just head over to YouTube and search Driven Chat or Driven and you'll see our channel. Have a look at that. That's there as well as loads of other things you can catch up on. Uh, lots of other video reviews and other bits and pieces. And don't forget, don't forget the BMW M3 touring. M3 touring, that yes. That's a big one. Yes, that's up. That's ready to go. And a written article on that one. So, uh, yep, head over to the YouTube channel, have a look at that. Head over to the website and have a look at that as well. Um, what else am I missing? Have oh. I missed anything else? Uh, there's probably a lot, but yeah. that's because it's been a very... Since the weather started, you know, like appearing, <laughs> yeah. we've been busy boys. Well, you've been busy, I should say, out there doing a lot of recording yeah. and uh, pestering press officers as we do. So um, Yes, my favourite thing to do, pester the press officers. We should, um, I feel like we should have our own award ceremony at the end of each year of who's the nicest press office and give them a... a box of Quality Street. Yes. Yeah. Good idea. Always well received. Yeah, I think so. Um, right, should we let these nice people get on with them? Oh, no, there is one more thing. I knew there was <laughs> but one wait, more thing. But there's wait, more. there's more. Just when you thought we were coming to an end. God, I can imagine just people like hovering over the close button. or they've. What I tend to do when I finish podcasts, it's usually timing a podcast to the point that I've finished the car journey and I'm waiting to get out of the car. And I'm like, get on with the end. Yeah, just finish. I just want to get out. Um, we're going to throw out a bit of an oddball here. Uh, I say oddball, some would expect this. We haven't really done this before. However, we are now opening up our possibilities of bringing in uh, sponsors to either episodes individually or seasons or stints of time. Uh, so perhaps you are an individual that has a business or you are involved in a particular business that might have an interest in sponsoring an episode or two or three or four or a month or six months of the Driven Chat podcast, um, simplest thing to do would be to reach out uh, to inquire. I can promise you one thing. It's not going to be as expensive as you think because we're not that big, but we're big enough. So, And on uh, that subject, yes, I've just refreshed our, our Driven weekly statistics. Oh, thank you, Miles. What have you got there? Well, only in the last week, 600,000 social engagements. Yes, that's quite a lot, isn't it? 10,000 views, uh, views of uh, the YouTube. Yeah. Uh, and 6,700 podcast downloads. And that's only in a week. That's only in a week. That is a good point. I say we're only small, but yeah, sometimes I do have to remind myself that we do have actually quite a lot of people that listen to what we do mm. for some reason, uh, you being one of them. So yeah, if you wanted to express uh, an interest or just find out more about sponsorship and wanting to be a bit more involved perhaps in what we do then drop me an email podcast at drivenchat.com is our email address um 
perhaps just throw in the subject line there something about sponsorship and I'll know to look out for it. Uh, as Miles says, we read everything. So all the emails, comments, DMs, everything that comes in, we do read. And uh, emails especially, I try my best to get back to every single person that gets in contact. So yeah, if this is something that might be of interest to you, do get in touch. I'll be very happy to come back to you with some further thoughts and stuff. As you can tell, I'm so well commercially trained in this field. <laughs> Not only did I nearly forget to mention it, I secondly seemingly don't know much about how it works. But there is a system in place, don't worry. There are people that have a better brain than I do on this sort of thing. I am just the voice. Right, now we really will let these nice people get on with their day. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this week's episode. Next week, uh, an interesting one because I'm going to be talking all things EV with a guest who is responsible for a massive EV subscription service and we'll be throwing all sorts of, dare I say it, difficult questions at him about the EV industry. So stay tuned for that one. For now, though, we'll say thank you very much for listening. Don't forget you can see everything that we do via our social media feeds at Driven Chat. And that's it. Go and have a lovely day, afternoon, morning, week, month, whatever it is you're doing, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. See you on the other one. See you on the other one. Bye. The Driven Chat Podcast, powered by Paramex Digital. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.